0: Well, in popular movies, of course, the story of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, uh, very dramatic here, but what I want to concentrate on is what happened just before that, okay? So, of course, you remember we talked about the very severe words of God when the people came up to Mount Sinai. It really seemed to uh, intimidate them quite a bit, and uh, remember we talked about how it's kind of surprising that 40 days later, right away, they're dancing drunk around a golden calf. And I don't know if you've ever read these words. The Bible uh, really is uh, quite humorous in places. This description here, Moses comes down, he's really upset at Aaron. Okay, and Aaron said to him, "'Don't be angry with me. "'You know how determined these people are to do evil. "'They said to me, "'We don't know what has happened to this man Moses "'who brought us out of Egypt. "'So make us a god to lead us.'" Okay, now Moses, or Aaron's explanation here. "'Well, I asked them to bring me their gold ornaments,' And those who had any took them off and gave them to me. And this is what happened. Well, I threw the ornaments into the fire and out came this bull calf. Um, as a parent, this uh, just was funny to me. You know, you walk in and your kids and they're doing something and you ask them, what happened? And oftentimes this uh, magical thinking where, uh, well, it just happened. Oh, we weird, I had no idea. Threw it in there and out came this uh, gold calf. Don't be upset at me. All right. Uh, the Bible is really uh, uncompromising here in its uh, honesty. I mean, we talked about how the disciples so often just really look foolish uh, in the gospel accounts. Well, so we want to back up. So Moses is up on Mount Sinai. God is aware of the rebellion. And these are the very difficult and challenging words of God to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Hurry and go back down because your people whom you led out of Egypt, have sinned and rejected me. They've already left the way that I commanded them to follow. They have made a bull calf of melted gold and have worshipped it and offered sacrifices to it. They are saying that this is their God who led them out of Egypt. I know how stubborn these people are. Now, don't try to stop me. It's interesting. Why is God talking this way? Don't try to stop me. I am angry with them, and I'm going to destroy them, and then I will make you and your descendants into a great nation." Okay, what do we make of these words? If we just back up here, Exodus 19, this is 40 days earlier, as they come up to the mountain. And this is how God would describe these people. The whole earth is mine, but you will be my chosen people, a people dedicated to me alone, and you will serve me as priests. And 40 days later, um, he's going to wipe them all out. Now, how many people came out of Egypt? Well, it says that there were 600,000 men not counting women and children. So some have estimated about 2 million people that came out of Egypt. And um, can you imagine? God is just about ready, it would seem, this close to wiping them all out. Okay, difficult story. Well, um, do you think, had Moses known, let's just uh, give Moses a glimpse into the future of what's gonna happen after Mount Sinai. Had Moses known that even his own family Miriam and Aaron would criticize him. Here in Numbers 12, Moses married a Cushite woman, and Miriam and Aaron criticized him for it. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Even his inner family is frequently not very loyal here to Moses. And I'll just give you one example here in Numbers. It's continuous throughout this journey to the promised land, Korah's Rebellion perhaps the worst, Uh, described in Numbers 16. Korah, who was a Levite, no less, from the clan of Kohath, rebelled against the leadership of Moses. He was joined by three members of the tribe of Reuben, and it lists all these names of people who were on Korah's side, and by 250 other Israelites. Notice, not just no-name people, but well-known leaders chosen by the community. They assembled before Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. All the members of the community belong to the Lord, and the Lord is with all of us. Hey, they think God's on their side. Why then, Moses, do you set yourself above the Lord's community? Okay, so had Moses known, hey, this is what the next 40 years is going to be like, do you think he would have um, agreed with God and said, "Yep, yeah, yeah, I think you're right? Well, let's go back and read the words um, again. Had Moses known, might he have said, yeah, I mean, who am I going to talk back to God? God wants to destroy the people. Um, Sounds like a plan. And notice how it ends. Look at this. Might Moses think, uh, these are a group of rebels. And look what's going to happen. God will make of me and my descendants into a great nation. Well, I'm not going to talk back to God. This sounds like a pretty good plan. Okay, well, let's go back to God's words because it's interesting God's emphasis He says to Moses, hurry and go back down because your people whom you led out of Egypt. Now, are these Moses people? Did Moses lead them out of Egypt? And then he's going to make of you and your descendants into a great nation. Okay, does that really reflect the reality? And I love the way in Moses' response to God, how he completely turns it around. I mean, is this like a parent when a child does something wrong? Well, it's your son. is that why God is talking this way? But notice Moses' response to God. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why should you be so angry with your people? Not my people, they're your people, whom you rescued from Egypt with great might and power. Why should the Egyptians be able to say that you led your people? That's how he just completely turns it around, out of Egypt, planning to kill them in the mountains and destroy them completely. Stop being angry, change your mind. And do not bring this disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the solemn promise you made to them to give them as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And to give their descendants all that land you promised would be their possession forever. And so the Lord, who changes not, changed his mind. And did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, one way of uh, imagining this story is that uh, really the one who was cool and collected and had control of his emotions here was Moses, that the creature needed to talk down the creator from his anger. Okay, is that really what happened? Don't you think God had a pretty good idea that these people were rebels? Was he totally shocked here by their rebellion around the golden calf? Okay, and if that's the case, why did he come to Moses threatening to destroy them? Well, uh, let's try to answer the question by just describing what happened here in the rest of the story. Moses went down, threw the Ten Commandments down. Uh, He took the bull calf, which they had made, melted it, ground it into fine powder, mixed it with water. And then he made the people of Israel drink it. Okay, a child washing its mouth out with soap. I mean, these are really uh, primitive measures here to to make uh, a strong point. Okay, and then he went back up to the mountain. But before he did that, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin, but now I will again go up to the mountain of the Lord. Perhaps I can obtain forgiveness for your sin. Moses then returned to the Lord and said, these people have committed a terrible sin. They have made a God out of gold and worshiped it. Here's the key point. Please forgive their sin, but if you won't, and what did he say? strike them out and make of me a great nation? No, forgive their sin, but if you won't, then remove my name from the book in which you have written the names of your people." Uh, this is really incredible. I mean, in the entire Old Testament, I think we'd have to put this up as one of the, uh, the highlight, one of the pinnacle moments. Okay, this reveals something uh, quite spectacular. And, and as I've you know, tried to put this together, I think God could have just let these people go out and be rebels and do what they did. And I think he saw an opportunity here in his friend Moses. Remember, he spoke face to face with Moses as a man speaks with a friend. I think he saw an opportunity here to reveal something that really would not be fully revealed until the cross. Okay, and that is self-sacrificial love, love that is more interested than others than self. And we see this come out Here in Moses, and I think this is the point that we're supposed to take away. This is the way God is, just like this. Okay, so let's, um, this concept, we're going to come back to this again and again and again in the Old Testament. God as an iconoclast. Okay, we talked about this in the story of uh, the, the sacrifice of Isaac. Remember what an iconoclast is. It's one who destroys religious images. One who attacks settled beliefs or institutions. And C.S. Lewis would describe God as the great iconoclast. God is trying to break down our false conceptions of God and to bring us closer to the reality of who he is. And I think these are iconoclastic methods. Um, It's dangerous maybe to summarize the story in a few words, but for those of you who are here, we talked about how during the time of Abraham and Isaac, the highest form of devotion to God was to kill your firstborn. Okay, and when God said to uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, Abraham didn't argue, he was up and on his way. Okay, what do we take away from this story? Well, in the end, what we learn is that God is not like all of the other gods of that time. He does not desire that we sacrifice our children to him. So perhaps we take away from this, well, God will provide. God himself will provide the sacrifice. He doesn't demand that we sacrifice in this way. Um, We see Jesus using these kinds of methods. Okay, this story between Jesus, uh, the interaction between Jesus and the Canaanite woman. Remember how the disciples, they were just totally turned off by this woman. First of all, she's a woman, and she's a heathen. Okay, and so they're very annoyed. And Jesus seems to uh, encourage their attitude towards this woman. He did not say a word to her. And his disciples came to him and begged him, send her away. She's following us and making all this noise. And then Jesus replied, and this wouldn't seem to be very encouraging to her, I have been sent only to the lost sheep of the people of Israel. Okay, why did he say that to this woman? Well, she didn't give up. At this, the woman came and fell at his feet. Help me, sir, she said. Now, don't we have pretty good confidence when we come to God, Jesus, and say, help me, Okay, how does he respond? Okay, what do you think of these words? Jesus would say, it isn't right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Now imagine the story, had ended right there, and the woman left, and that's all we have. A woman came to Jesus and pled, help me. And Jesus said, it isn't right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And uh, let's, let's make a Bible study over that story, okay? Um, but again, I think like so many times, uh, God who knew the heart of Moses so well and God who knew the heart of this woman so well uh, he wanted to again to reveal something in uh, iconoclastic methods all right and so her response is that's true sir she answered but even the dogs eat the leftovers that fall from their master's table and so Jesus answered her you are a woman of great faith and he certainly would not have done that if she wasn't hadn't been a woman of great faith what you want will be done for you and at that very moment her daughter was healed and i think if you were a disciple Uh, This should have been, uh, you should have seen, wow, my attitude towards this woman and the fact that she's a heathen was completely false. And we see Jesus kind of building up this false image and then shattering it. Okay, well, the book of Job, will go through lots and lots of examples of God using these iconoclastic methods. But here in the story of uh, Moses, I think the point that God wanted to reveal in this story, he knew what was in Moses, and he wanted to reveal love for others more than self. Um, That is the highest ideal. So what we have here are two very dramatically different competing kingdoms. Uh, What Moses revealed is a a very wonderful reflection of God's kingdom, self-sacrificial, other-centered love. The other kingdom. Um, which we'll just mention very briefly. We've read this verse several times. The description here, king of Babylon, um, and we tried to make the case that this is referring ultimately to Satan. Uh, Notice the, the great difference here. All the eyes we see in this. I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend. I will be like the most high. The competing kingdom, is one in which we strive to step above by pushing other people down. Okay, that is really the polar opposite of God's kingdom. We could give a lot of examples of this, but I think we, we should at least recognize here the words of Jesus um, that the prince of this world, who's the prince of this world? He's referring to Satan, the prince of this world. And he would say, just as he would, uh, uh, before Gethsemane in the upper room, kind of said to his disciples, I cannot talk with you much longer because the prince of this world is coming. Okay, we don't very often acknowledge that the prince of this world is, um, boy, it's not uh, perhaps who we might think it is. What do we see in this world? It's survival of the fittest, right? Is survival of the fittest, is that God's design, okay, to hunt and kill and eat the weaker? Okay, is that the way God designed our world? Isn't that the way the competing kingdom and uh, that's the essence, okay, of the polar opposite of God's kingdom. So when we think about uh, just events from the last couple days in Haiti, um, and i listened, you know, Pat Robertson made his comments that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and we'll hear lots of discussion, how could God allow uh, hear what happened in Haiti, but I have never heard someone on a talk radio or something like that say, well, you know what, uh, that's what happens when you allow someone else like Satan to become the prince of this world. And we have horrible devastation and disease, but this is not God's kingdom. Okay, we don't often give Satan much credit for the horrible things that go on on this planet. So there's a competing kingdom, and we're all infected with this desire to step over people, to push others down rather than to sacrifice for others. Um, The disciples were so infected with this attitude And I'll just read one example. They asked Jesus again and again and again to be first, to sit at his right side, to be pushed up, to be elevated. And in this case, the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her two sons. She knelt down and started begging him to do something for her. And Jesus asked her what she wanted. And she said, when you come into your kingdom, please let one of my sons sit at your right side and the other at your left. And Jesus answered, not one of you knows what you are asking. Now notice how he would describe the other kingdom. When the ten other disciples heard this, they were angry with the two brothers, so we've got this continual infighting. Who's going to be first? And Jesus described, You know that foreign rulers like to order their people around, and their great leaders have full power over everyone they rule, but don't act like them. Don't act like that kingdom. If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all the others. And if you want to be first you must be the slave of the rest. The Son of Man did not come to be a slave master, but a slave who will give his life to rescue many people. Does that not sound like the attitude of Moses that we see in this story? No, there's a kingdom of the world. Okay, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is like this, where the stronger serves, actually serves the weaker. Okay, and and if we believe Jesus to be God in human form, it's a convincing demonstration of what God's kingdom is really like. We see this reflected in others, not just Moses. Okay, in the stoning of Stephen, you would think, I mean, these people were foaming at the mouth. They were so angry at Stephen, they began to stone him. And I think it's pretty remarkable what Stephen said as he died. He knelt down, cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not remember this sin against them. And he said this and died. Do you think Stephen was influenced? by the death of Jesus. And as Jesus died, he said, Father, forgive them. Okay, is this not a reflection of Jesus Christ? Paul here in talking about the fellow Jews would use uh, very much the same words, uh, same uh, emotions here. He said, I'm speaking the truth. He goes out of his way to say, I really mean what I'm about to say. I belong to Christ and I do not lie my conscience ruled by the Holy Spirit also assures me that I am not lying. When I say, how great is my sorrow, how endless the pain in my heart for my people, my own flesh and blood. And notice, for their sake, I could wish that I myself were under God's curse and separated from Christ. Is that not just like Moses? Do you think Paul really meant it? Is this just poetic words or did he really mean, I love my fellow people so much, the ones that are not coming in to the message of Christ, That if it would help them, I would separate myself from Christ for others. Okay, it's exactly the same uh, attitude of Moses. This is the ideal. Okay, so when we uh, talk about love, um, there are four uh, Greek words for love. This is agape love. And let's just talk briefly about the other types of love that are described um, in the Bible. Okay. We have a love here that you can see the word erotic in that. This is affection of a sexual nature or being in love. Okay, there's another type of love that it has more to do with affection through familiarity. So an aunt or an uncle that you see once a year at Christmas, okay, you're gonna see them for the next 20 years, their family, you don't have much of an ongoing interaction with them. Okay, but it's a, it's a relationship, it can be a, a nice relationship, but it's not, uh, not that intimate really. Then there's Phileo, okay, city of Philadelphia, brotherly love. Okay, this is an affectionate, uh, sentimental, passionate love, sometimes referred to as brotherly love. Uh, but this is based largely on the emotions and feelings. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, but since it's based on the feelings, it's subject, subject to change as feelings change. Okay, this is different than when we use the term agape love. This is what agape love is. Okay, it's love in its highest and truest form. Okay, this is the love of which there's no greater, but can we, can we put some uh, more detailed description on it? Um, agape love appears to be based more on the mind. In other words, a choice, a decision, has more to do with what we actually do than perhaps how we might feel about someone. has to do with our actions, how we treat people. Okay, agape love, I like this description, adds principle to feeling in such a way that principle now controls the feelings. It brings into play the higher powers of the mind and intelligence. Okay, and when we look up different examples of how this word agape is used, for example, in John 15:13, there is no greater love, here this is agape love, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. In other words, it is a self-sacrificial giving Love, Okay, that invests in others. Okay, so uh, some quotes that I found helpful in describing. What really is agape love? Here's one description. It is a love which keeps loving when its object is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, or completely unworthy. It gives 100% and expects nothing in return. That's a good description of agape love. Or how about this? Ascribing worth to another at cost to oneself. Okay? Agape love is really when we begin to see other people, even people who may not be very lovable people on the outside, we begin to try to see them as God sees them. So some uh, perhaps the most famous verse of all probably is in the Bible. For God so loved, it's agape here, and notice what, did, what was the action of love. God so loved the world, he gave. Again, it is giving. It is a self-sacrificial, agape love. So love here in 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, what's the definition of love? Well, notice what it is not. Love is not self-seeking. Love, agape love, is, again, other-centered. And so a quote here some of you may be familiar with uh, in the book Education, which I think is describing this agape love. It's described here as unselfishness, but I think we could say being other-centered. Unselfishness. Notice the principle of God's kingdom is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of actions to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness, other-centered love, that Jesus came in the form of humanity. Do we describe the mission of Jesus very often in that way? He came to reveal the other-centered love of God. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. So we have two kingdoms that are based on entirely different principles. And I think, um, you know, for all of you going into the medical field, this is uh, just a a goldmine opportunity to reveal this sort of love in the world. I mean, what potentially do you do as a doctor? You go out, you serve, Uh, don't have to go into the mission field to serve as a physician. But it very much comes across physicians who are um, concerned, have a genuine empathy for their patients and the problems that their patients come in with, Uh, can reveal something spectacular about God in the process. Runs all the way through the New Testament. Live in love, agape love. And notice, how do we know what that's like? Okay, how we know is, as Christ loved you, that's our demonstration. That reveals, okay, Moses is a reflection of this, but the ultimate reflection is Jesus Christ. So we know what it is, as Christ loved you, loved us, and gave his life for you. And we are to do everything in love. And how about this? In Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith that is energized or activated by, and the word here again is agape, love. The only thing that counts is our faith that is energized by that kind of love. Now, here's what is really challenging, though. Okay, it it goes beyond just, you know, describing this to people that we like. Okay, Jesus would say, well, you've heard it said, love agape your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, it's a great challenge. It goes beyond that. Love agape your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. How do you love your enemies? He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now. Isn't this an incredible description here of the father? What does the father do? He causes the son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, the father is gracious. The father gives agape love even to his enemies. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? And he would go on to say, be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. Okay, that command to be perfect really means, uh, hey, grow up. That's how the Message Bible translates it. Grow up and be like God. What is God like? God gives agape love even to his enemies. Okay, that's the context for being perfect. To be like God is really to even treat your enemies in that way. Well, those are nice words, but um, it is very hard to know how to treat an enemy um, in this way. Let's try to gain some, uh, perhaps a glimpse of this. Imagine you're watching TV and um, to your horror, the news reveals the story of um, an awful murder of uh, a woman. And as the description goes on, um, all of a sudden you're shocked to discover that this is none other than your mother, who's been murdered. And you're just discovering it because you happen to walk, walk by the TV. And as you are just in total shock about this, and you know they're describing a man who did this, and per- perhaps immediately anger, naturally would come up. You'd be furious with this person. You would want punishment against this individual who did this horrible thing. Okay, now, but, but I think to perhaps gain a better perspective of how God views the horrible things like this that go on in the world, imagine as the story goes on that the person who did this horrible thing is your brother. Okay, now what dilemma do you feel? You, are you angry? Of course, be not natural. If you're not upset and very angry, angry at the person who did it. Okay, but how do you feel when the person who did it is someone that you happen to love? And I think there we perhaps get a glimpse into God's uh, anguish as he views the daily events of the world because we're all God's children. So when a, uh, one of his children goes horribly wrong and does horrible things, does he hate that? Yes, but the individual is still his child. Okay, and so uh, Graham Maxwell has used this illustration, which was, has been very helpful to me. I have three kids and... Um, You know, let's say that uh, one of them began behaving very badly, really badly. And you asked me, uh, How many children do I have? And I think about it, and uh, well, two. Okay? And then uh, maybe uh, in a few weeks they're all behaving very badly. And you asked me, Well, I don't have any kids. Okay? Uh, So we are all God's children, good and bad alike. And God is uh, desperately trying to intervene in the world, but. How does God feel about his bad children? Okay, the love is still there, okay, even despite his outrage over the horrible things some of his children are doing. Okay, so when Jesus would say here at the very end of his ministry, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now notice who he's describing. You kill the prophets and stone the messengers. God has sent you. Okay, how does God feel about those people? How many times I wanted to put my arms around all your people just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. In other words, Jerusalem, you people who kill the prophets and who are persecuting me, uh, how many times I've wanted to wrap you up like a hen. Now that's God describing, I'd like to do this for you, my enemies, okay, but you're not allowing me. But that's how God feels about his enemies. Okay, and if we could maybe just finish, uh, it's, it's very difficult to put a picture, a mental image, on how to treat enemies. And of course, Jesus revealed a whole spectrum of how he treated the Pharisees. Uh, but I want to just go to the, the very end of Jesus' life. One story, okay, where Jesus is anxious to have this Passover meal. We read about this in Luke, and we come up with the same issue again. Maybe we won't read the whole passage here, but in the upper room, if you can imagine... An argument broke out amongst the disciples as to which one of them would be thought of as the greatest. In the upper room, Jesus is about to die and his disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Okay? Can you imagine? And Jesus said to them, and it's the same kind of thing that we read earlier, well, the kings of the pagans have power over their people and the rulers claim the title, friends of the people, but this is not the way it is with you. And I've told you this so many times during the last three and a half years, but you still don't have it. Hey, okay? rather... Here's what it's like in my kingdom. The greatest one among you must be like the youngest and the leader must be like the servant. Who is greater? The one who sits down to eat or the one who serves? The one who sits down, of course, but I am among you as one who serves. And Jesus didn't just pay lip service to this. He went on to show them this is what it looks like. And uh, I know we've talked about this before. It's such a spectacular story where Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power and in recognition of all of that power and he knew that he had come from God, was going to God. And so what he did in that context was to rise from the table, take off his outer garment, tie a towel around his waist. And he washed a dozen pairs of dirty feet. I mean, a menial servant task but he wanted to put skin on this concept of This is what my kingdom looks like. Uh, What's even, I think, most remarkable of all is that he didn't wash 11 pairs of dirty feet. Okay, he washed the feet of Judas as well, in in complete knowledge that Judas uh, had betrayed him. Okay, I like Gandhi's quote here. That's often thought, well, this is kind of a weak picture of God. This is not weakness, (coughs) this is real power. Uh, Gandhi would say, a coward is incapable of exhibiting love. It's the prerogative of the brave. Okay, this is not weakness. Okay, and one of uh, my favorite quotes of all, omnipotence. What do we think of when we think of omnipotence? Is not to be understood as the power of unlimited coercion, but as the power of infinite persuasion, the invincible power of self-negating, self-sacrificial love. Whenever true agape love is revealed, it's, it's quite spectacular what happens. Okay, It gets so unlike the kingdom of the world that uh, people are shocked by it. Okay, so if we just follow here what happened in the upper room, okay, Jesus washed their feet, they had the bread and the wine, and as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, Hurry and do what you must. None of the others at the table understood why Jesus said this to them. Since Judas was in charge of the money bag, Some of the disciples thought that Jesus had told him to go and buy what they needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Have you read this part of the story where Jesus left the upper room, Satan entered into him, he's going to go out and do his task, and some of the disciples are still under the impression, well, maybe he's going to give something to the poor. Okay, if you were Jesus, wouldn't you be anxious to humiliate Judas, to point out exactly, uh, look, there goes the betrayer, and just to really uh, point it out, in a very strong way. But here the disciples are under the impression that maybe he's going out to do something for the poor. Uh, what do you think about the way Jesus treated Judas? Do you think Jesus was actually trying to win Judas in this process, washed his feet, treated him this way? Okay, he certainly was very concerned about Peter who betrayed him, okay? Peter came back uh, and Judas did not, Judas hung himself. So I think uh, the ultimate revelation of what our God is like and what the kingdom is like as we follow Jesus out to the cross uh, where he dies and he says, Father, forgive them. Okay, that is the hundred times greater revelation, a million times greater than what we see with Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. And if I could just uh, maybe go to this last very busy slide here, I was hoping to get all the arrows to work and everything, but um, let's just imagine here we have God, us, and others. And I think what we see in the revelation of God through Jesus Christ is, again, supreme example of agape love. And it is love that awakens love within us. We begin to respond to God. We begin to trust God. Okay, a relationship is restored. So now we have something going back and forth now between us and God. Okay, and in that process, what happens when we really are open and receptive to the the true love that god has for us we begin to define ourselves not by how other people define us okay that is that's just the natural thing to do we define ourselves by the opinions that others around us have about us when we define ourselves by the love that god has for us and we the calvary love revealed on the cross that becomes our definition of who we are okay then there's a transformation that takes place and we begin to diffuse that other-centered love to others, okay? And in that process, what happens? Others see a reflection of God in us, that other-centered love in us, and there's just, again, a natural response. We see this in the early Christian church where they were selling their goods, they were giving to others, and thousands were coming in every day, okay? When that, that picture of the kingdom is revealed. So I think that's the ideal, and I think God wanted to just get that message out in its kind of embryonic stage all the way back in Exodus. Okay, so next time, um, read through the book of Leviticus in all your free time, and we'll try to consider the sanctuary system. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, your incredible methods of teaching and revealing things of such great importance that go all the way through the Bible, even back in this horrible uh, story of what happened uh, at Mount Sinai. Please help us to be uh, filled with the true picture of you, to define ourselves by the love that you have for us, and help us to reveal that love to others around us. Amen.